In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. As the war in Ukraine neared its 100th day, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky told the world that Russian forces now control one-fifth of his country's territory. For an unprovoked invasion to conquer one-fifth of a country, especially given what we've learned about how Russian troops have acted while occupying that territory, is sad and it's disturbing. It is also worth considering, though, that nearly 100 days after the war began, one-fifth is about four-fifths less of Ukraine than many people assumed Russia would control. Nothing about this war has been certain. That remains as true today as it was in February. At some point, though, somehow, this war will end. With a deal, with the capture of a capital, with Putin's soldiers slinking home, tails between their legs, or, more likely, with a long, slow attrition on the front lines that eventually becomes a stalemate. At this point, it's impossible to tell which of these scenarios will play out. But today we'll examine what's happening on the ground now that some of the world's attention has moved on, what the implications are for summer and fall, and eventually, how this conflict might finally close. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Balkan Devlin is a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. He is a super forecaster for Good Judgment Incorporated. We invite him on to discuss foreign policy because he looks both forward and backward. Hey, Balkan. Hello. Why don't we start with, uh, with the opposite of forecasting? How many people predicted in February when the war in Ukraine began that it would still be ongoing and still hard fought in June? Um, I think that's a very good question. Um, first, a lot of people, of course, missed that the the war, um, you know, was going to happen. Uh, but when it it started, I think it led to two different uh, ways of thinking. One, uh, which you saw uh, also among the people who were not actually expecting a war, saying that oh, this will be over soon. You know, the Russians will be able to roll through. Uh, Ukraine won't be able to 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 resist. And the others um, who were also sort of on the other side and expecting a, a, a war. And this is you know some uh, you know Western um, you know analysts, uh, but but also a lot of people. Uh, in uh, in Eastern Europe, in, in Poland and the Baltics, who know the, the situation on the ground um, and who have been working with Ukrainians and the Ukrainian army and, and others uh, closely, uh, arguing that, no, this will not uh, be over um, over quickly. But the, the majority, I would say, when, when the war initially started, especially in the first few days, uh, were thinking that this would be uh, over soon, 
um, some sort of a settlement or a change of government in Kiev, and that the blitzkrieg that uh, Putin um, uh, tried to sort of execute, going all the way to Kiev, um, uh, would would succeed. Of course, after three days, that became quite obvious that that's not going to work, and that's not uh, that's not how it is. And the, and the Ukrainians are putting up a very brave um, and courageous fight, um, and 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 then people started to look in a different way. What was the most optimistic prediction in terms of how Ukraine's military uh, would fare against Russia's? And did most people n- not understand um, Ukraine's military or, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to think of a more official term than like their will to fight or their heart, but um, it sure seems like they've been underestimated this entire time. Exactly. And I think you know, morale is an extremely important um, component of uh, modern warfare. I mean, people tend to focus on the shiny objects and, you know, the latest uh, weaponry and so on and so forth. But if you do not have either sort of the capable people and who, who are using those things as well as who are willing to defend and die, um, most of the shiny objects uh, could just remain there. I mean, great examples are the Iraqi army sort of melting away in 2013-14 in the face of ISIS in Mosul, or the the, the Afghan um, uh, army uh, in the face of Taliban just mm-hmm. last year. Now we no longer talk about that because the events t- took over, but the West uh, trained 20 years. Uh, provided a lot of uh, weaponry, and they just basically left, and 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 you know, the Taliban took over. Um, so you know that morale component is extremely important, and I think a lot of people uh, you know, underestimate it. Um, the degree to which the Ukrainian society and Ukrainian national identity uh, is really you know consolidated um, in the past eight years um, since the the first invasion in 2014. Hmm. And a lot of the Ukrainian armed forces have been through that training, have been through the, you know, um, the front, have been fighting um, this this war for um, for eight years. So it has been there and that really changed the way, the way people um, see both in terms of capabilities, but also their willingness. They also saw what happens when they do not resist, mm-hmm. right? They see what happens in, in, in Donbass. They see what happens um, to Ukrainians or Ukrainian patriots in, in, in the occupied Crimea when they do not resist. So I think those two things, that experience over eight years um, and and the notion that they lost you know, 14,000 um, people, um, as well as they, knowing what happens if they do not resist, really um, sort of uh, make the Ukrainian army and the Ukrainian people more broadly uh, fiercely um, independent and fiercely, uh, you know, committed to um, to defending, and a lot of the observers, including the Russians themselves, I think, heavily underestimated that. Mm-hmm. As we talk today, and I believe we recently passed uh, 100 days of this war, what do we know about the situation on the ground right now? You know, is is the fighting still fierce and are troops moving in both directions the way they were in the early days of the war? And the reason I ask this is because of the way the media in the West has, I don't want to say moved on because they haven't moved on, but in the early days of the war, you know, we were getting daily updates of, mm-hmm. you know, here's where the Ukrainians are, here's where the Russians are, here's what's happening. And now it feels like whether or not we've become distracted by other pressing issues or have things just moved closer to a kind of stalemate. 
Um, I think there are a few things. First, uh, of course, unlike the first days of the war, you do not have sort of a three axes of, of, of attack vectors uh, anymore, right? Um, uh, you don't have the sort of the, the northern uh, northern front. Uh, you don't have the the one through through um, Kharkiv and, and and the south and the southeast. What we have in terms of the fighting on the ground is uh, very much concentrated in Donbass, particularly uh, around Luhansk, um, you know, oblast uh, region right now. Um, so you essentially have a single sort of uh, uh, a front where the Russian forces are being um, concentrated and, and therefore sort of trying to encircle uh, key cities and encircle um, Ukrainian forces, either to capture them or, 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 or force them to retreat. So they, there is a lot more concentrated fighting. The fighting is very fierce. And uh, Ukrainians are also unfortunately losing a lot of uh, a lot of people. Zelensky himself um, said that they are losing about fifty to hundred people mm-hmm. a day, soldiers a day. And Russians are uh, experiencing uh, losses, not the as far as I can see, not at the rate that they did initially. And they uh, so they they adapted, they changed, and they're fighting in a sort of a better. Uh, better positions. They have shorter supply lines. They manage to dig in. They're fighting, you know, with their backs to their own proxies uh, in the region, etc., etc. But the the fighting is extremely fierce. Um, still, partly because the the military situation right now uh, is is such that the outcome of this uh, fierce fighting will probably determine where will be the the battle lines going into the fall. So. Um, you know, Russians try to push a mile or two ahead every day. Ukrainians are trying to push back and trying to make decisions when they need to focus their forces uh, right now. So right. I think uh, the, the, the the situation on the ground is as fierce as, as before, uh, which is not you know paying attention to it because it's, it's it's a smaller um, front. It is more concentrated uh, in the in the southeast. When you and others try to look ahead to how this war might end, and when, I guess. What kinds of factors are in play, and what influences that kind of prediction? Uh, a few things. I mean, I can you know, um, talk about myself, what, how I can, uh, when I look at this. Sure. I tend to look at it a number of, uh, you know, number of factors. One, what are the material facts on the ground? And I think if one thing, this, this war made it quite clear, um, is the importance of of logistics and the material capabilities. If you don't have the weapons, if you don't have the ammunition, if you don't have the trucks, if you don't have the the, the actual capabilities, um, you might be overwhelmed uh, quite quickly. And that's why I think you know Western support to Ukraine is extremely important and needs to be sustained. Um, so you need to look at what the material factors are, um, how that works out, who has sort of higher levels of, of material support and, and supplies and resources, how fast they can replenish them, including including soldiers. Uh, so that's number one. You, you might want to look at how, how how long can you sustain this at a particular tempo. Right. Well, number two, you might want to look at the key decision makers and how they perceive the situation. What are their incentive structures are? You know, we, we all operate in, in certain incentives. Uh, we reply and we, we react to, um, to different incentive structures. Uh, that's that's how, we, how we work. Um, and you need to look at what those incentives are for decision makers such as Putin and, and, and Zelensky and, and, and Macron and, and Scholz and, and, and Biden and others. You know, what 
uh, how they assess the situation vis-a-vis their perceived interests. And that has a lot to do with how they process information. So I try to understand what kind of information, for example, Putin uh, is getting, how he ranks different outcomes, um, say outright victory, defeat, a compromise solution, a stalemate, and try to reason from there. It's, it's, it's important to understand that when you talk, think about rationality, it is you want to think about rationality in terms of means and ends, right? Um, and in order to understand that, you need to be able to understand what the ends are and how different actors rank those different ends. Um, so that will be that will be another one. And of course, the, the last um, perhaps the component is is the broader uh, international context in which the war takes place. Um, there are a lot of unintended and perhaps intended consequences of the war, and that that creates ripple effects that creates different pressures such as uh, the food crises um, that, that will be coming up, such as energy, such as uh, higher inflation that, that has other sources, including, you know, sort of old economic policies and whatnot. But the, 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 the war and, and, the, and the energy um, and, and the food crisis is, is, is not helping there. Other actors, such as China, mm-hmm. um, how they perceive, uh, right, inter-alliance uh, relationship, how the Western Europeans versus Eastern Europeans are seeing the war. So you try to understand how the context in which this war works because the parties to the war need to be able to maintain those relationships. They do not act in a vacuum. They act within the particular context of economic and political relations with other states. So I tend to look at those things and look at what the material um, structures on the ground, what is possible and what is not possible to do, what the incentives are for the key decision makers, um, how they think about this, this war, how they think about their own interests. It doesn't matter what we attribute to them what their interests are. It matters how they see their own interests, as well as what is international context and how that shifts and changes um, as as the war goes on. How much of that gets thrown into chaos by the sheer irrationality of Vladimir Putin? I don't think he is irrational. I mean, I think mm. that is a, uh, it is important to understand, uh, like going back to, uh, to my comment about rationality as connection, connecting means and ends. We're not necessarily talking about whether those ends make sense from our own value system or what we think it is important and what we see as 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 Russian state interests are. If you look at through that particular perspective, um, I think it is important to understand that uh, Putin is a rational actor. He is he has a he has a very distorted view of the world. Mm. His information is probably um, quite distorted. He's not really getting. Um, the, the true you know, uh, nature of the situation. It was very clear uh, initially that he wanted to do that blitzkrieg and he thought he could just you know, drop in paratroopers and he can take over Kiev and the Ukrainians will you know, welcome uh, the Russian forces as liberators. So that's just a very bigoted and racist and a very distorted view of Ukraine and Ukrainian um, uh, identity and Ukrainians broadly. But if, if that's your assumption, if that's your worldview, we can connect it to particular means to achieve your end. You can say that, oh, they will lay their arms. It's going to be a, you know, a walk in the park. We don't have to, uh, we can, you know, we can even send the National Guard because what we will really rely on is crowd control. Ukrainian army will melt away. We will go through. And if you want to do that, you can try to do that blitzkrieg. Right. Right. So it doesn't make him irrational um, because he has, you know, bad information because he has a distorted worldview or the fact that he prefers um, different outcomes than what we would consider uh, to be 
uh, good outcomes. Mm. If you prefer to have a long-lasting stalemate and conflict over compromise, you will try to maintain that rather than reach a compromise. That doesn't make you irrational. That just makes you different preferences over different outcomes. I see. And just one last point here. I think it is also important to understand um, that it is also a tactic by the, by, by the Kremlin to uh, present, particularly when it comes to a nuclear saber-rattling, for example, um, to, to present Kremlin as if they are ready to take all sorts of uh, risky uh, behavior, which doesn't um, actually reflect uh, the on-the-ground realities and how they actually act. Rhetoric is not necessarily the same as reality. Look at uh, look at the, uh, the ground, right? They tried to have a three-axis you know, attack. They tried to take Kiev. It didn't work. They changed tactics. They changed war aims, immediate war aims, and switched to securing the Donbass region and gave up the idea of Kiev and, and going through all the way and so on and so forth. So he can adapt and he can change depending on the circumstances. Um, so he's not, he's not irrational. His ends are not our ends, uh, and we might not make sense of them, but he's trying to connect those ends to the means, and he learns. I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season 6, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada, within about 12 months. So she was scared. Something out there scared her. You just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency. So given all of those factors and given what we know now about the state of play on the ground, what are the most likely outcomes for this war to end? Or is one of the most likely outcomes that it simply doesn't? Um, historically speaking, if you look at it, these type of wars, um, you do have a sort of a barbell system in a way that either they end very quickly with the sort of victory of one side or it goes on. Uh, as since it, you know, it didn't, you know, end in, in three days that that the Russians hoped um, to to take over. Um, this uh, war uh, is going to be with us for a while now. The intensity of it will ebb and flow uh, and will change. Um, I, there is nothing on the ground today that suggests that there is any potential. Um, for uh, for a negotiated settlement now, uh, Ukrainians are rightfully pushing back and and trying to uh, you know push back the the invading forces as, as much as possible. And they are you know on on, on a political uh, level they are winning, but they are also trying to uh, win on the ground. Um, Russians can dig in, and they already start digging in, and they show no sort of desire to. Um, uh, to stop right now. They believe that they can outlast both Ukraine and, and the Western support to Ukraine. So they are planning to stay stay long. So I don't uh, expect the war, to be frank, um, to be over. You might have some kind of temporary you know, fixing of battle lines um, uh, in, in the next few months if, if it comes to that, but I don't even think uh, that that is a possibility. We are um, going to witness a long-term um, uh, uh, you know, a conflict that is a stalemate that will, in intensity, go up and down 
um, in the coming months and perhaps years. Um, I'm not expecting anything um, being sorted out and sort of a negotiated settlement being reached and all that kind of thing uh, in the next, um, say, 18 months. So there's been some talk recently um, about Ukraine perhaps ceding some land, uh, particularly in the Donbass, to the Russians in order to um, and I'm paraphrasing here stuff that I've I've seen mostly from the U.S. right, but in other places as well, to to give Putin a victory of sorts that he can, you know, claim that Russia succeeded in its goals and, you know, they can go home and this war can finally end. Uh, what's the likelihood of that? And also, like, when we talk about, you know, moving forces like that across a map, what does that mean to the Ukrainians on the ground there? Exactly. I mean, it is not, uh, you know, this is not a game of risk where you, you, you move pieces. We know what it means to cede that land now, right? It means butcher. It means, you know, people's hands being tied in their back and shot in the head in front of their homes. You know, yeah. uh, women and kids as young as five being raped. Mm -hmm. um, people being, you know, forced into filtration camps and, and basically deported or kidnapped to Russia. Right. Um, they adopted a number of laws, including adoption of um, kids, Ukrainian kids, in a much more simplified and fast manner as they kidnapped them and, and sent them to camps and resettlements in Russia. Um, you know, we see what happened in Mariupol uh, in terms of the destruction of the city. So that That's what it means. And Ukrainians are very much aware of that. And they are, that's why they're, they're very much uh, fighting. And it is important to also remember that a lot of the people that the, where the supposedly these concessions were supposed to happen or, or, or the, the, the heaviest fighting is going on are Russian-speaking Ukrainians. Um, and they are the ones who are fighting the fiercest, right? It, so it actually um, sort of uh, put a lie um, and, and this, to this uh, a very simplistic narrative about there is this mythical pro-Russian um, uh, Ukrainian East that will be welcoming, uh, welcoming Russia. No. Mariupol is largely a Russian-speaking city, which is completely leveled and destroyed. Mm -hmm. Kharkiv is the same story. Um, so that's what it means, underground. Now, the likelihood of that at this stage is almost nil. Those who argue for it, either in, 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 in the US, uh, on the right, uh, or sometimes on the left, as well as some uh, European voices, are, uh, are the same voices that basically... Uh, were against arming Ukraine before the war and constantly asked for concessions uh, to Putin. So this is their new spiel, um, um, saying that I think there are a bunch of reasons. Some of them are basically your simple sort of ethno-nationalists who do not want to do anything with it. Uh, others are Kremlin shields, uh, and, and the rest are those who are annoyed uh, with, with the distraction, as what they see as distraction, uh, of the war in Europe and would like to focus on elsewhere, such as um, you know, competition with China. Um, so uh, they will be pushing for that, but there is no, I think, mechanism in which today Zelensky government or any other Ukrainian government, after seeing Bucha, after seeing Mariupol, after seeing all the massacres and rapes, um, that they will be willing to trade those territories um, to Russia for some promise uh, of, um, of, of a settlement, which... You know, there is no reason to believe that Putin will uh, keep his word.
What about the Ukrainian army itself then? You mentioned a few minutes ago that they were losing uh, perhaps 5,200 people a day. Uh, they were, I know they've they've received a lot of uh, military supplies from other countries, but they were uh, seen as outgunned to start this thing. Uh, how long can they hold out despite how courageously they fought? Um, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm not, you know, particularly privy to the Ukrainian, um, you know, um, military strength at this stage. And I think they are um, holding it close to their um, chest. And I think that's the right decision, uh, to be frank. Fair. But, you know, simple demographics suggests that um, if this goes sufficiently long, a country of, um, you know, about 40 million uh, versus a country of, what, 135 million, uh, the, the numbers are not necessarily on their side. Uh, but this also suggests or assumes that Russia could bear uh, to, you know, could, could bring to bear a, a larger number of uh, troop influx and other things. And that's not going to, you know, easily happen. There are costs to it. There is political cost to declare, you know, declaring mobilization, bringing those new whatever number of troops, um, uh, training them, uh, equipping them. I'm not sure they will have the means, etc. So the the damage that the Russian armed forces uh, sustained, um, even if sort of the, the the full Ukrainian numbers are not right. They talk about about thirty thousand dead, about seventy thousand wounded. Um, let's assume two thirds of those numbers are true. Um, it is a, a huge amount of battle uh, combat force uh, losses, which are not easy to replace. So. Yes, uh, if you look at it in a very grand scale and if you look at it in very aggregate numbers, um, Russia has more resources to bear, including weaponry and, and, and people. Um, but politically, mobilizing those resources will be extremely hard and will weaken uh, Putin's regime. So he will need to rethink whether he can commit and he can utilize that advantage. On the other hand, you know, Ukrainians are fully mobilized. Um, they're training their uh, their people. They are being provided with weapons, and they need to be provided more, so that it is more on sort of the technological side of the things that that bear the burden rather than the individual um, individual soldiers. So they can hold out a lot longer than a lot of people assume. And again, because they're fighting for their homes, um, that also provides a lot of a um, lot of support. Unlike the you know the recruit, eighteen year old recruit that has no idea why he's being sent. To um, to Ukraine to fight, mm -hmm. um, so I think there is that um, there is that uh, important component to it. How long they can sustain, I don't know. But can they sustain it longer than a lot of people assumed uh, in the beginning of the war? I'm pretty sure they could. Well, last question. Then most of what you've said so far seems pretty indicative of. Uh, weeks and months and months longer um, that we're in for a sort of sustained uh, grinding down of this war. What will you watch for in the next couple of months? And could anything change that? Um, I think we will see uh, by the end of the summer where the, um, the front line is, where the battle lines would be. It will be very hard uh, for Russians to push uh, getting into the fall and the winter. Um, they didn't do a good job during sort of a spring you know, campaign season um, and going over the summer. They are unlikely to be able to make any major offensives uh, in the fall and in winter. Um, so I think the next few months will really determine where the long-term stalemate and the battle lines will be. So I'll be watching watching that, that number one. Number two, 
um, we need to really be ready and we need to think about how we can react to a very bleak winter, um, uh, not only in Ukraine, but also around the world, including uh, food shortages, including energy crises, right. and and whether the policies that are being sort of floated around to uh, ensure that grain shipments can leave, that, that you know, Russia cannot blackmail the world um, through you know, holding hostage the food shipments uh, from Ukraine, um, will determine uh, to what extent uh, Russia and Kremlin will be open to some sort of a negotiation and uh, a kind of a declaring you know, a victory and, and leave. Putin can do that anytime. He can declare a victory, annex or try to annex uh, the existing uh, you know, uh, places that he controls and can leave. Um, so I think the, the whole idea of providing some sort of a safe, uh, you know, face-saving option is a mirage, and it really works with the with the Kremlin's, um, uh, you know, narrative uh, about it. Uh, but the, those things, how the, the the food situation would evolve, as well as how long the Western unity can be maintained, as the costs, both the economic and, and political costs of uh, of of the war on the allies uh, increase. Those are the things that I will uh, I will be I will be watching because uh, my my concern is that there will be increasing voices, particularly on the Western European front, right. not so much the Eastern Europeans, um, uh, to push Kiev into a, a premature uh, negotiation and ceasefire, and those could change uh, the dynamics on the ground. Balkan, thanks as always for this, and uh, I guess something tells me we'll talk in another couple months. <laughs> it's always a pleasure to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Balkan Devlin, super forecaster for Good Judgment Incorporated. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. Write to us, hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. Or call us, leave a comment, ask a question, request a story. You can do all three in one voicemail if you talk fast enough, like I'm doing right here. You can also find The Big Story wherever you get your podcasts, an Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, Pocket Cast, CastBox, or whatever you want to use. Amazon Music is also a good choice. And of course, wherever you find us, rate us, review us, tell your friends. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Have a really safe weekend, and we'll talk Monday. Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding, with me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now.